Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief for WFIU and WTIU. Today we're going to talk about uh, the recent rise in racial and religious tensions in the United States, perhaps most visibly with members of the Islamic faith. As uh, you know, you know, we've had a lot. There've been a lot of uh, discussions about. Um, in the presidential campaign, particularly with the presumptive presidential candidate Donald Trump's call for an outright ban on Muslim immigration. And there have been lots of other issues, the, the uh, shooting in Orlando by a shooter who reported his allegiance, allegiance to ISIS has created a lot of discussion as well. Uh, it's fostering fear and xenophobia, and uh, it should probably be said that it, that's getting in the way of what should be a very peaceful coexistence. So today on Noon Edition, we're going to talk with some guests about being uh, a Muslim in Indiana. So if you uh, will welcome our two guests today, Hazam Bata, who's the Secretary General of the Islamic Society of North America, which is in Plainfield, Indiana, and Rima Khan Shahid, the Executive Director of the Muslim Alliance of Indiana. You can join the discussion by calling 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Thanks for thanks for being here. Um, I do want to start with you, uh, Mr. Bata, about... Um, your role in, uh, you know, as the Secretary General of the Islamic Society of North America, but also I read in your bio that you spent some time working in Orlando. So you must have some pretty strong feelings about what happened uh, in Orlando a couple of weeks ago. Sure. Well, let, let me start with that. You know, we condemn violence unconditionally. And what happened in Orlando was a crime. Uh, there was nothing religious about it, and ISNA has condemned it along with other acts of violence uh, repeatedly. It's, it was it was really an unfortunate event in a in a wonderful city. Uh, regarding the organization, it's the Islamic Society of North America, or ISNA for short, is America's oldest and largest umbrella organization. Uh, we are in our 53rd year now and uh, you know we engage in a variety of things we do government outreach interfaith we have youth camps we have a scholarship program matrimonial program we do regional conferences we have education forums and we have our large annual convention which is uh, the largest gathering of muslims in north america and we're having it uh, in chicago this year every weekend so I've always been curious because I actually worked two years in Plainfield, Indiana. How did the organization get started in Plainfield? So, the, you know, ISNA has its roots in the Muslim Student Association, which started in Champaign-Urbana. Um, Urbana-Champaign, mm-hmm. Urbana sorry. Urbana-Champaign. Right. <laughs> Urbana and, uh, you know, when, when the organization got bigger, their first headquarters was in Gary, Indiana. Uh, and then when the organization got even even bigger than that, they decided to, to build a, a proper headquarters. And what area would be convenient to all of their constituents, which was primarily in the Midwest, and that was Indianapolis. And, and that's how we ended up here. You know, there was a large tract of land uh, that we got for a good price, and that, that's how we ended up in, in Plainfield. Okay. 
Uh, Rima Khan Shahida, you're the executive director of the Muslim Alliance of Indiana. Can you tell us a little bit about that group? Yeah, we are a statewide organization, and um, we also engage in a lot of interfaith work. We try to engage Muslims civically in our local government. We work a lot with domestic violence victims and also try to educate people, um, social workers, etc., on cultural um, domestic violence in regards with cultural issues and how best to approach someone with, that may be abused. So we also do a whole wide variety of things, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. Has you were talking a little bit about how you denounce all these acts of violence. So I'm wondering, can you speak a little bit about what the Islamic principles are in regards to extreme violence or even terrorism? Sure, that's a great question. You know, there's the unfortunate stereotype now that Islam is a violent religion, which which it's not. And a few statistics, you know, people equate terrorism with Islam, when the fact of the matter is Muslims commit less than 5% of the terrorism in the United States. But you never know that according to the media. And in the last couple of years, there have been hundreds of mass shootings, and a mass shooting is defined as a shooting in which four or more people are killed or injured, and only about six or seven of them were committed by Muslims. So again, you're looking at maybe two to three percent, one percent of the mass shootings, despite the fact that we're two percent of the population. So we are actually, um, you know, statistically less likely uh, to commit a mass shooting or an act of terrorism than, than other groups. Uh, but despite that, we still have that stereotype, unfortunately. Yeah. Islam uh, is a very peaceful religion, and God states in the Quran, our holy book, that if you take a life, it is as if you have killed all of mankind. And if you save a life, it's as if you have saved all of mankind. Uh, during the time of the Prophet, uh, they were engaged in defensive struggles, but they never initiated battles. They never initiated wars. Islam was prosecuted uh, like any other religion early on, just as Judaism and Christianity, and Muslims had to defend themselves. Uh, but they had uh, established rules of engagement uh, that you know are admirable even by today's So, for example, the young and the elderly could not be attacked. Those who stayed in their homes could not be attacked. You could not uh, destroy trees or crops or cattle. You could not uh, harm anyone who who did not want to participate in the war. So, you know, Islam is very restrictive when it comes to the use of violence, and it can only be done in defensive matters, and it can only be waged by someone with the legitimate authority to do so. In modern times, that would be the nation state. So even when we're talking about things like the Orlando shooting, I know there's been some criticism about this recently, but do you think we are, we're too quick to draw the connection between the Islamic ties and, and then violence in terms of, I guess I'm saying just in terms of the descriptions of the shooters, like we don't, we don't necessarily do that with Christianity, for example. No, no, you're right. Whenever the shooter is, is brown and has a foreign-sounding name, we instantly start talking about the shooter's religion. When the fact of the matter is that this person was not religious, um, 
No, he did not regular the mosque. He was not a scholar. He did not know much about his religion, and it was really not a religiously motivated attack. He had some mental health issues. He was a violent person, according to his wife. So religion really had nothing to do with it. But, you know, going back to this issue of double standard, you're absolutely right, there is a double standard. Because on the same day, on the same day that that shooting took place, there was a man in Los Angeles who was arrested by, I forget if it was the police or the FBI. He had three uh, assault rifles and a lot of explosives in his car, and he was on his way to uh, a gay pride parade or a gay pride rally. Now, that would have ended up, you know, just as horrifically as what happened in Orlando, but we were lucky enough to catch him before he managed to kill anyone. And that person was white, you know, with blonde hair. Presumably he was a Christian, but you don't hear anything about him in the news. And, in fact, many people don't even know about this individual who was actually from Indiana, but he was in Los Angeles at the time that he was trying to plan this, this crime. So there is a real double standard in in the media, and Muslims always seem to get the short end of the stick. All right, we're joined by a third guest now. Uh, Abigail Leonard is here. She's from Bloomington. She is a Muslim. Abigail, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for thanks for being here. So we're we just started the conversation, and um, you know, I guess um, one place I would start with you is you know you live here in Southern Indiana, mm-hmm. and. You know, the, the political climate and uh, what we had an incident here, um, what, six months ago or so, close yes. to a year ago um, involving a, a Muslim woman. You know, how, how safe do you feel in Bloomington and, and what kind of a community is, is this to live in? Well, you know, I was born and raised here. Mm-hmm. So I think um, unlike I think something like 80 percent of the North American Muslim populations are foreign born. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think sometimes as a Muslim that's foreign born, you have a different perspective of um, being in America and safety than you do if you're a person that was born here and raised here. Um, So I've always felt very safe in Bloomington um, because we've kind of always been like the the island of diversity in Indiana. So, um, and I grew up here, went to school here. I have lots of non-Muslim friends and support. I really haven't started feeling unsafe until recently. So mm-hmm. um, I, I pretty much felt very accepted by my coworkers, by my friends and family. So that's that's a benefit. I'm, you know, I also have the privilege of being like a white American. So people look at me differently, especially since I'm a convert. Um, so I think that leads to a little bit more safety than somebody that maybe is considered a foreigner because of their ethnicity or uh, their nationality. Mm-hmm. So what's what's changed for you that's made you feel a little less safe? Well, um, I converted uh, to Islam, or reverted, as some people prefer to say, but I, I use the term converted. Um, I converted to Islam in, in 2007. So uh, this was before I had children. Um, of course, I have a seven-year-old and, a, and an almost three-year-old, and um, I'm raising them to be Muslim. You know, I'm having them celebrate I eat in Ramadan and, and watch my husband and I pray. But um, I think it, it really started making me feel really concerned uh, when, you know, when I had children, I had to start saying to myself, what kind of a world are they being raised in? You know, they have very Muslim sounding names. Uh, I, I really had to 
when I was naming my children, I had to say, okay, do these sound too Muslim? Like I had to discard names like uh, Muhammad and Abdullah and Ahmed, which were really common names in my husband's family, um, and and pick names that are that could be assumed to be more uh, ethnically diverse. Um, and I also gave my children like uh, English middle names, so if they did feel persecuted, they could start going by their middle names as opposed to their. Arabic first names. So, and I've, you know, I, and I don't live in the in the hub of Indiana University like a lot of the uh, Muslims in this town. I live on the outskirts because that's where I was raised. I I live on, like a mile away from the house I grew up in. Um, <clears throat> so, um, my son goes to a less diverse school than if he were going to one of the schools that were more closely affiliated with the university. And I've sat in the office of his school and listened to a little boy talk about, well, what's wrong with the Confederate flag? Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and putting my son in, in a world like that where people <clears throat> choose to be ignorant of oppression and um, ignorance is, is a little scary, you know, knowing that he could be, there could be other children around him talking about um how bad Muslims are. Mm-hmm. Um, and just hearing this one little boy, I mean, he was talking to an African-American student about like, well, the Confederate flag's not bad. And, and I was, and I was, I had to hold my tongue because these weren't my children. So I was just like, oh, systematic mm-hmm. oppression. You obviously aren't being taught that. So um, it's a little scary. Um, I'm, my ch- I, and I hate to say this, but my children, represent as ethnically white they're very they they look very much like me so they don't have to deal with with people making assumptions and you know like you're hearing about kids being told oh you're going to be deported when donald trump is made president um and i had i had a friend that her her children took more after their father and um, they were darker skinned, and there were kids at their school that were saying, "You can't touch my stuff because you're brown." <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so I think I really started to become afraid when the political climate started to be like, "All Muslims hate us, and we need to put them in concentration camps, basically, and um, we need to monitor them, even if they haven't done anything wrong, and even though most Muslim terrorists that have been discovered in the United States are discovered because their community turned them in, you know, and um, so this has started to make me very afraid just because I have children. For myself, I feel like I can stand up for myself. But, you know, when my son comes home, he says, well, I want to be Christian now because he just feels uncomfortable being the only Muslim in his class. I think that that's a huge issue. Mm-hmm. All right. If you want to join our conversation, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, one 285 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. Rima, I, I wanted to ask you to, to react a little bit to what Abigail said. Um, you know, you're you're a, a woman who is Muslim living in Indi- Indianapolis, I assume, or up in that area. Um, you know, are you, do you feel safe, or have, you, have your, your views on how safe you feel changed in the last, um, you know, year or so? 
Well, um, I was actually born here in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. and I attended the public school system up in Carmel, and I've lived here my entire life. And I never felt different than any other child. I never viewed myself as different, but now I think I'm also a mother and I have three children. And I think that now with the political rhetoric, and I think that certain politicians have made it okay for people to be racist. I think that they have given this whole new light to people that it's okay to hate somebody based on their color, based on how they migrated to the United States and the religion. And the conversation that that our children hear and are being exposed to and the worries that they have to face is very different from when I grew up. And it's very sad. I feel almost as that every time there, unfortunately, there is an act of terrorism, an act of violence that it not only affects everybody in that area and their loved ones, but it affects it affects the entire country. It affects how people feel safe, whether people don't know if they're going to be safe when they go out to a place of worship, like we saw last year in, in the South Carolina. They don't know if they're going to be safe if they go to a movie theater, like we saw in Colorado. And they also don't know if they're going to feel safe if they want to go out for a night of dancing. So I think people don't feel safe anymore in the United States, but also our children don't feel safe when something unfortunately may be linked somehow by just by association of name to a Muslim. They don't feel safe that maybe their friends won't like them anymore. Maybe they will be taunted at school. Maybe they will be bullied. And it's just it's a very unfortunate way. And like Hazem was saying that we do not identify people in Colorado, he was not, when he went inside that movie theater a couple years ago and he, he shot at moviegoers, we did not label him as a Christian terrorist or a atheist terrorist or agnostic terrorist, but we are very quick to put these labels on people that may, by even name, associated with Islam, because we believe people that go in and shoot people have nothing to do with our faith. Mm-hmm. And Rima, maybe you can even speak a little bit more about just the diversity in the faith. I mean, it's more than just conservative and radical. It's it seems right. it's it's a lot deeper than that. If you can talk to that point, yes, it is. And I think a lot of times that we hold Muslims to the standard that we don't hold people of other faiths. Um, you know, I don't think that. People, people make these broad statements that Muslims are supposed to pray five times a day. Yes, we are supposed to pray five times a day. Does that mean all Muslims pray five times a day? No. We don't hold other people of other religions to these standards. All Muslims are supposed to do this. And all Muslims are not from Arab background. We have so many different cultures and races, as well as how you choose to practice your religion. I think that somehow Muslims are all painted with one paintbrush, and I think that that all needs to change. Mm-hmm. So I have a, a question, I guess, for, well, for any of the three of you, but, but can you explain, um, you know, the Islamic State and the, the rise of, of ISIS? And, you know, people like the shooter in Orlando claim an allegiance to the Islamic State, which obviously is not the same as the religion the muslim religion well, Abigail? with the um with the shooter in orlando i i feel that you know the information that has been 
put out about his life, I I don't think that he was actually aligning himself with with um, Daesh. I think he is. I think he was trying to just give a reason to the world why he was doing this to hide the fact that he he had sexual and romantic feelings towards the same sex and um and i i think maybe his his background might have built his shame about his sexuality but i think that uh in reality he was just a man very troubled about his own um desires and needs and they had said that he had had a, a scare with another um romantic interest that he may have uh, been exposed to HIV. And I, I think that for him, I mean, this is my opinion, of course, interpreting something that I know nothing about. I can't get into the head of this person that did such a terrible thing. But I think it's really easy for super, super angry people that have a lot of hate in their heart, whether for themselves or for other people, to say, I'm going to align myself with this group that is just the embodiment of hate. And I think that people that choose to join this group, it's something, there's something broken in their, their hearts and in their souls. And they're, they're choosing to join a group that embodies violence because they want to be violent. And people, you know, if you're, if you're racist, if you're sexist, you try and, uh, you know, you try and justify that behavior. Well, I have proof that in my mind that this person's inferior to me and it's okay for me to talk like this. Um, and I think it's the same for if you're angry and hate-filled. You try and find people just like you. Um, you know, people join the KKK not because, you know, they. I personally don't feel like it's because they're like, oh, I really want the world to be better and all puppies and kittens and flowers, and I think this group is going to do it. They want a way to activate their own hate upon the world. And I, and I think you know, that that's... Mm -hmm. I think... I think, I think the ISIS is the result of many things, but more than anything, I think it's the result of the destabilization and the vacuum, the political vacuum that has been created in the Middle East. Um, it is an area that has become lawless, and a lot of that has to do with colonialism. Um, most people are not aware what the West has, has done to the Middle East since World War I, uh, when France and England carved up the Middle East. Uh, you, know, you know, Syria and Lebanon and Iraq and all these countries were not created until after World War I because they were all under the Ottoman Empire before that. And, um, you know, the Western powers, they, it's not uncommon for them to divide and conquer. They, they did the same thing in Africa. And so now, you know, this horrible foreign policy of the West that has negatively affected the Middle East, we're now paying, paying the price for that. For that now, and people use religion, I think, as as an, as an, as an easy out, whereas you know we never had this kind of conflict um, 20 years ago. You know, Islam has been around for almost a millennia and a half now, and the Middle East has never had this kind of violence, you know, except for the last 20 years. So I think it's very short-sighted to blame religion. And I remember I read several articles. Uh, some of the few reporters that have interviewed. ISIS people or have, or, or have actually been uh, to ISIS-controlled areas. There was a French journalist a little less than a year ago who was one of the few people that ISIS had captured and then let go. 
And he, he had commented, he said there was nothing religious about what they were doing. There were no Qur'ans anywhere, people were not praying, there was nothing religious about ISIS whatsoever. Everything was politically motivated. And I read another article just a couple of weeks ago about a reporter who had interviewed um, someone that had been detained. Uh, he, was, he was part of ISIS, and he was captured by local law enforcement, and he was interviewed by this journalist. And it was, it was the same thing. These were just young, impressionable, lost boys. Uh, who didn't know anything about religion, who were just looking for some place to belong. You know, much, much for the same reason that many youngsters in the United States join gangs, uh, just out of a sense of wanting to belong and have a sense of family. Many, many young people in the Middle East uh, join for the same reasons, and, and they have no hopes for a decent future, no hopes of education and, and jobs because of what's happened in the Middle East. And then all of a sudden, you know, ISIS offers something that seems very attractive. You know, we'll give you, we'll give you kinship and, and love and a gun, and we'll, we'll make you a man. I mean, who, you know, that's, that's going to be very attractive to, to people in that situation. Right. Okay, we're going to have to take a short break. Uh, we're talking about um, being Muslim in Indiana right now uh, and the, uh, the atmosphere that's surrounding politics today. If you have questions or comments, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We're uh, talking with three guests today from the uh, the Hoosier Muslim community. Hazem Bata is the Secretary General of the Islamic Society of North America. Rima Khan Shahid is Executive Director of the Muslim Alliance of Indiana. And Abigail Leonard is here. She's a Bloomington resident uh, who has converted to... Uh, to being to Islam. So we're, we're talking with those three. If you want to join us, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. Or you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I was just hoping Hazim could continue on what we were talking about a little bit before the break. This There seems to be this confusion between Islam and whether that's a political movement. 
Can you can you speak to that, Hazim? Sure. So regarding 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 ISIS, you mean? You mean ISIS or or? Well, I or feel like religion? just I feel like yeah. um, just when you hear it even in the media and in conversation, it's like Islam is talked about more as if it is a a political movement. And sure, yeah, sure. You know, um, you know. Look, every everyone is affected by their faith in different ways, in, including politicians. Um, you know, if Islam actually doesn't have too much to say on governance. Other than that, matters should be resolved via uh, group consultation, which is which is really just an, another way of describing democracy. Um, and individual politicians are going to be influenced by their faith to some extent or another. You know, in Muslim-majority countries, it's, it's no different. Um, Muslim politicians, to some extent, are going to be influenced by their faith and the decisions and policies that they propose. And, you know, Christians are, are no different. You know, um, Christian evangelicals, you know, they're... They don't apologize for trying to push values and policies that are generally consistent with with their faith. Um, now we have to balance that, obviously, with individual rights and the Constitution and things of that nature. But uh, Islam is not a, a political ideology by by any means. It is a it is a way of living your life on 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 primarily an individual level. There are some communal aspects of Islam, and and then there are a few political aspects of of Islam. But it's nothing like what the, the media makes it out to be. It is not this totalitarian regime. Um, that just happens to be uh, the governments of most of the Middle East, uh, for whatever reason or another. Uh, but Islam is a very pluralistic religion. And if you look back at the history of Muslim-majority countries, you'll find that they were very open, generally speaking. You know, they, they had their bad times, but they were pluralistic. And even many Jewish historians, Jewish rabbi historians, will tell you that some of the golden years of the Jewish community was under the Muslim Moors in Spain, and during the, the, the golden years in Baghdad, which is, you know, modern-day Iraq. Uh, so, no, Islam has a, has a very uh, beautiful history of pluralism and, and promoting open society. All right. Thank you very much. We have a phone call now, and Steve is from Bloomington. Steve, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just curious if your guests uh, can comment on this. You often hear it said that um, Im Muslim immigrants to America have an easier time assimilating. And I realize I think two of your uh, guests are not immigrants or have not been, at least two. But I'm curious if that generalization that you hear often repeated is true from their experience. Um, and I'd like to take my answer, or uh, hear the answer off, off the phone. So thank you. Okay, Steve. Um, I really don't, um, I, I think that by generalizing and saying that, you know, uh, immigrants have an easier or less easy time it, it's totally dependent on the on the person um and and their their values you know islam is is not just one chunk of of people all with the same ideals and personalities i mean within islam you have sunni shia sufi and then even in those uh 
channels of Islam, there are other divides. Um, so I have seen my, my friends that are immigrants, my Muslim immigrant friends, like they come and they totally uh, just adjust very easily. And I, I've seen some that come and, and they've been here 30 years and they still aren't, don't feel like part of the culture. So um, again, I think that's highly dependent on the person. Um, you know, Islamically, we're supposed to be very gracious towards our guests, towards our hosts, towards everyone. Um, you know, my, my husband has come here from uh, a Middle Eastern country, and he's totally, you know, he's, we always joke that he's more American than me because he's, <laughs> he just loves every aspect of, of being an American. Um, and, and, you know, he had a friend from the same village that he came from who had a very hard time adjusting and eventually went back. So um, I, I can't say, we just can't be broad statement like, oh, these people have a hard time becoming, you know, true Americans. And I think we also need to reexamine the, um, the concept of assimilation, you know, how disrespectful is assimilation to people? It's like saying, oh, well, since you came to my space, you need to become just like me. You need to forget everything about your past, about your heritage, about your family dynamic, whatever, and be like me to be a true American. Um, we really need to start rejecting that idea of uh, America being the melting pot because it's bleeding away everybody's individual identities. We need to think of it like the salad bowl. You know, the tomato is by itself. The piece of lettuce is by itself. It's still retaining its tomato-ness. Um, but it's still working cohesively in this beautiful salad bowl to make a delicious lunch, you know. So I think we need to, we need to say, like, these people coming into our country from other places, they don't need to assimilate to be American. They just have to have a love of their neighbors, their society, and wanting America to be a, a wonderful place for everyone. And you don't have to assimilate to be an American. You don't have to, to you know, stop. I had a, I had a friend once say, say to me about our our mutual friend that was religiously vegetarian oh she doesn't eat meat in america even like why would you expect somebody to like abandon their religious beliefs about eating eating meat just because they were they've changed geographical location it's um it's disrespectful those mm -hmm. people's um beliefs you know rima do you have any uh, reaction to that question um, I think I agree with what Abigail said. I think that it just depends on the person. I think it depends on maybe where they came from and how easy. I, I, I think that that's a very broad statement to make, and you can't just make such large um, generalizations. Mm -hmm. All right. Again, our phone numbers, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I wanted to talk a little bit about the political climate because, you know, this is – it's unusual. I mean, I've been here for many – for, you know, six decades, and I've never seen anything quite like, you know, having a presidential candidate that, that – uh, like Donald Trump who um, just says, you know, we're, I'd like to ban a particular religious group from coming to America or even – you know, having a governor, you know, Mike Pence's governor who, 
you know, wants to stop, um, you know, a resettlement program in, in the state. And I guess I, um, we could start with, with you, Hazem, about, um, you know, the, the political um, atmosphere in the U.S. now compared to, you know, in previous times and, and what, you know, what your reaction to that is and how, are you fearful of, you know, what could happen in November? Um, I, honestly, I'm not too fearful for the simple reason that, you know, I, I believe in the American majority. I, I don't think Americans are any more hateful now than they were a year ago. I think it's just become more acceptable to be, to be hateful in public. And so I think that, you know, that, that hatred, that bigotry was always there. It's just people are no longer afraid to show it. Uh, you know, and I, I, I believe in America, and I believe that the majority of Americans are reasonable people, and that Americans will eventually do the right thing. And I think that if Trump does become the Republican nominee, so many people will come out to vote in opposition, regardless of who the other candidate is, that I, I, I don't think he'll, he'll ever become president. And, you know, it's very easy for... Um, Trump's antics to get a lot of attention, but at the same time, we have to remember that the Bernie Sanders campaign and the wonderful message of inclusion that he's been pushing forward has been resonating very, very well. And you see his rallies are packed with tens of thousands of, of people. And so we don't, want, um, we don't want to just focus on the negative. We want to also focus on the positive. I think it was a Pew study I was reading that said folks of the Muslim faith are the least likely to vote. So I'm wondering, um, is that going to change perhaps in this election? I personally feel like, if anything, uh, the Muslim community might be least likely to vote because we have so many um, members of our community that maybe are not qualified to vote. Um, uh, you know, when Barack Obama was campaigning the first time, we had a representative come from his campaign to our mosque here and say, oh, you should go, you know, vote. And a lot of them at, sitting around in this meeting were like, yeah, we're not we're not legal residents because we have a lot of um, uh, non-American um, nationals in the Islamic community here in Bloomington because they've come to study at the university. So that it may be totally different in anybody else's population. But I think in general, um, even though it has them, I, I believe, you know, I, I love your hopefulness, but, um, you know, I'm coming from a different place. I'm slowly watching my like Facebook newsfeed fill up with people that have known me for years. That may be my coworker, my friend, my um, relative, um, and they're just they're totally agreeing with this hatred like it's they're starting to be like oh yeah like let's vote in Trump he's so smart he's so great you know he's gonna do all this stuff and I and I I personally am sitting back horrified going um guys you know me right you know that like this person is advocating for my family to not be 100 percent equal citizens of the United States and as inspired I was by the Bernie Sanders campaign, he's not in the running at this point. And, um, and I think Muslims are in a, a tight spot because the Clinton campaign is not, not wholly uh, involved in, in protecting Muslim rights either. I mean, maybe slightly more than um, 
than Donald Trump. But I, I really, you know, Hillary Clinton under her previous role has been influential in in sending a lot of destruction to Muslim countries and um, eliminating the Muslim vote. So uh, I think, you know, even people that are against Donald Trump, they're still very hesitant to vote for Hillary Clinton because she has has a history of not of being very conservative and sending bombs to countries where that are mostly Muslim. So, um, so as much as I want to say like, yeah, in November, everything's going to turn out all right. I'm, I'm really afraid personally. And, you know, I love being a Muslim in America because I feel like I am able to practice Islam in a pure way. And I don't have to give in to like cultural aspects that are that people have in in predominantly Muslim countries, just like Christians here. They take some things and call it Christianity, but it's really culture. Um, So I particularly love being a Muslim in the United States. I even though I am in a minority, I feel like I get to practice my religion the way I want. I get to raise my children in a pluralistic society. I, you know, I love the fact that we are um, very open in the United States to the um, LGBTQ community. We're, we're slowly giving them their rights, not fast enough. But, uh, you know, I want my child to be a part of that world. And for the first time in my life, I'm going, where can I move that I will be safe? Where do I not have to worry about going to the, you know, it's Ramadan right now. We're fasting. We tend to get together with our, um, at, at our mosques to, to break our fast. And I am genuinely afraid to go because somebody put uh, something online about our particular Bloomington Mosque saying the line of sight is not disrupted and they have very bad security. Let's show these people. You know, like I'm terrified to take my son to the mosque to play outside on the playground equipment. And he wants to go. He wants to be with his friends and play and be a joyful child. But I have to worry about is there some sicko like hiding in the bushes with a gun for some sort of revenge? And um, and as much as as I want to believe that that the people that are racist and and want to believe all this propaganda that all Muslims are terrible, even though there's like two billion of us, I I'm still terrified <laughs> to be here and listen to this and know that my son's exposed to it and to to know like who's the wacko that's going to come out of the woodwork to do whatever and. Um, so yeah, I'm very, I'm very nervous about the political situation. <laughs> Hazim, and I know recently there was a shooting at the Islamic Society. Is there any sort of update on that? Yeah, so they, you know somebody shot our sign a few weeks ago. It was it was kind of it was an anticlimactic event. Uh, we didn't notice it um, until a couple of days after it had happened. We don't have any, any leads on it. Uh, we did have some vandalism, uh, I believe in April, somebody, uh, or that three youngsters had spray-painted spray the front wall of the building. And so, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, this is the new normal now. These are the types of things that we have to live with. Um, but, you know, despite that, I. You know, I, I understand the, the other caller's apprehension, and it's certainly well-founded. Well but I just, you know, I don't want to live a life of fear. That's, that's not going to be healthy for me 
not going to be healthy for my kids. And while, you know, these acts of vandalism and people shooting our signs are unfortunate, we have to remember that other groups have gone through similar trials in the United States. You know, you can ask the Jewish community, the black community, the Latino community, the Irish, the Catholics, the Japanese after World War II. Right? Well, we've even all, now, I mean, these, these and, things are uh, and happening is, again. You know, I think this is a sign that we are closer to full acceptance by, by the majority. We have uh, two phone calls, so let's go first to John from Bloomington. John? To uh, ask a question following up on the panelists' um, expressed fear about where do I move in order to feel safe. Uh, we know from a recent Associated Press story that uh, hate crimes are not being uh, reported by about half of the police forces in the state of Indiana. Uh, despite the fact that there was his, is a law on the books from 16 years ago uh, requiring local all local police forces to annually, well, twice annually, report hate crimes in their in their jurisdictions. So my question is for the panelists: um, Have they been working with allies in their areas to? Um, find out if local police have been following the law in reporting hate crimes uh, and for um, Bob Salzberg whether the Herald Times will devote resources to work with the, the newspapers in Bedford, in Martinsville, in Nashville to figure out why um, police units in those areas have not been following the law for uh, for such a long time. Thank you. All right, Rima, can you uh, you want to go first on that? Um, I'm going to hand that one over to Hassan because okay. I'm, a, I'm I'm trying trying to process that. Okay. We did actually. We we met uh, with a city councilor of Indianapolis. This was uh, a few months ago about about that law, and the reporting issue was one of the main issues that we had discussed. So it is it is something that we are we are working on uh, because it's it's really important to keep stats on these types of things. So we have we have a good feel of what the tone of the country is, and uh, and as the caller mentioned, you know there are many incidents that do not that do not go reported that are not reported and so we don't we don't have a proper idea of the scale of the problem so that is that is something that that isna is working on abigail um well as far as i know i'm not an official member of the um islamic center of bloomington's um representative body um but i of course, I deal with them. Uh, right now, I know we're very much focusing on outreach programs um, with the Open Hearted Campaign and Hijabi Diaries, which you can find on Facebook or online. We're just trying to make people more aware of their neighbors that are Muslim. Um, but as far as I know, uh, nobody's really focusing on hate crimes, in specifically in Bloomington, and how they're reported. All right, we're going to go straight to Alex from Bloomington. Alex? Yes, I have a comment about this melting pot concept. I think it's a brilliant idea and takes best 
from all the conferences uh, from different ethnic and otherwise groups. And when people have this ghetto mentality, even self-imposed, when their children must be playing only with children who share whatever it is, that prevents from a good relationship, becoming good citizens. And one needs to remember, when people come here, very often they come from intolerances in their previous countries. And then they come here and they complain that it's too democratic, too bad, and things like that. You know, whoever does not like it needs to change their mentality in this blessed country. Thank you. All right, Alex. Thanks a lot. You know, um, people are allowed to have their opinions. I don't think that like people like the Ku Klux Klan or Donald Trump should be stifled in their opinions, though I find their opinions very undemocratic. Um, so to say that people that come from other countries uh, – they should change their their thoughts. We have American-born people that are very restrictive in their beliefs and how they should be carried out within the law. Um, and I don't think those voices should be silenced. I don't think they should be a majority, of course, because I feel um, like many people. I was I'm a very red, white, and blue person. You know, I'm I'm like land of the free, home of the brave. You know, um, and I want that. I want people to have equality here. Um, and the suggestion that people come here and they only mingle with their own kind, you know, my my son, I would say 98% of all his friends are non-Muslim children. Um, I would say 98% of my friends are non-Muslims um, and American. Um, and the, the friends that I have that are from other countries and are more diverse backgrounds are my Muslim friends. So... Um, Though I do believe that when you come to the United States, you should be prepared for the fact that we are a democracy. We we need to be concerned about the um, the rights of all hum, human beings, whether they agree with us or not. Um, but you know, there are going to be people just like ones that are born here that are going to be more conservative or be more liberally minded than other people and we need to respect their thoughts all right we have to cut you off there you know we're out of time i'm sorry we could have gone on for a really long time here today i want to thank our guests uh hazem bata rima khan shahid and abigail leonard for sarah whitmire engineer mike pashkash and drew dodlin who was back as our producer today i'm bob zaltzberg thanks for listening Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.